your lunch with us. It's time for another episode of the amazing, fantastic vegan radio. You know you're Jones in for tofu. Montana cattle rancher who experiences an epiphany during a health crisis and resolves to devote his life to undoing the damage done by his agribusiness empire. That's Howard Lyman. Yep. Plus, so it's about a Michigan beef farmer whose childhood wounds are healed by the unexpected affection of a sanctuary cow. Harold Brown. And it's about a young couple who stumbled on a massive injustice hidden away by the factory farming industry and find they can't turn away even though they can only help one animal at a time. Gene and Larry Boston. <laughs> it's an inspiring story of personal redemption, compassion, healing, and hope. Peaceable Kingdom has screened at 34 film festivals worldwide and has received numerous awards. And I think it is a great film to check out. Um, there aren't really that many um, kind of vicious, you know, animal scenes. There's maybe just a couple. So I think this might be a good film for Young children. Families, toddlers. Yeah, families, toddlers. Bring them all. I don't know about toddlers. <laughs> um, we also have the second annual Arise for Inspiration Silent Art Auction. This will be held in Chapin Auditorium on Saturday, December 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. And all proceeds from this benefit go to grassroots social change in Springfield, Massachusetts. Please come and enjoy folk, acoustic, and acapella performances by Nice Shoes Feminist Acapella, Guitar Boy, The Raging Grannies, and UAR, delicious refreshments from local restaurants, and a chance to bid on beautiful, priceless artwork created by Pioneer Valley artists. Including me. That's true. I, I submitted a piece called um, Even Clown Girls Get the Blues. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a door prize 
including a one-of-a-kind Josh Simpson blown glass piece, two pounds of Rayo's coffee, and a number of gift certificates to local lenders. You'd be jacked up for days. Two pounds, two of, pounds coffee. of coffee. Especially after your fast. I'm not drinking coffee and tea right now, thank you. That's good. <laughs> and the last local event is the Valley Vegan Society December Meetup. It's this Sunday, December 10th, at 5.30 p.m. at Evolution Cafe, 22 Chestnut Street, behind the Sicko Station in Florence, Massachusetts. Sicko? Sicko Station? Sicko. That's where people go to get sick. Sicko. And in addition to this potluck that begins at 5.30, um, we have a speaker, architect Carol Vinksay. Vinks. Okay. Trying to, trying to come up with that. And Scott's helping me out. Carol Vinks as our featured speaker at 7 p.m. Her presentation is Building Hope, Architecture, Design, and the Wave of the Future. Carol has a great passion for green building. So hopefully a lot of you can make it out. I think it'll be a great potluck. There's always a lot so of great... So what's the wave of the future? Is that like a, a V symbol or something? A V symbol. <laughs> um, I'm assuming no... I think we. I think people know what green building is. I like coming is. up with new waves. It's environmental architecture. I'm a new waver. Um, a little piece I just want to add for the potluck is you. It's a three dollar, two dollar donation actually. Yeah, I, thought I thought you were raising the price. <laughs> we should. <laughs> we never have any money. It's a two dollar donation when you come in the door, and please bring your own um, fork, spoon, knife, bowl, plate, and cup. And please, a vegan dish to pass. please bring a vegan dish to pass, and it would be great if you could write the ingredients on your entree. Right on the food? Right on the postcard next to the food. Oh, okay. That'd be pretty artistic. Derek's very sassy this morning. I don't yeah, know. If you I think have, like, all your entrees, like, spell out what they're made out of, that'd be pretty cool. I'll let you be in charge of that. Could be an artistic potluck. Scott, where's that bell? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to start bringing my own bell. <laughs> I'm really, really upset. I'm really upset that the bell, the bell left the station. It's really, really disappointing. Who stole the bell? All right. We should put a reward out. Okay, so we've got some stories here. Are you guys ready? I can jingle. Are you ready for any comments? <clears throat> yes, I okay. definitely am ready for comments. Okay. Please. All right, our first story is raising cattle produces more greenhouse gases than driving cars. Now, this would be a good one for anybody who saw um, Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient Truth. It was inconveniently uh, left out part of the Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, the Inconvenient Truth, the movie by Al Gore. Perhaps because his family are cattle ranchers. <laughs> that must be it. He didn't, he didn't breathe a word about any kind of animal. Looks like he's got a little animal in his belly. Anyways, he didn't mention he didn't mention anything about uh, factory farms and the greenhouse, uh, the gases, the methane gases that are emitted from so many cows um, being in production. Read the story. Okay, so we've got a new United Nations report released at the end of November stated that raising bovines for human consumption was more of a contributor to global warming than cars. Livestock are one of the most significant contributors to today's most serious environmental problems, senior UN Food and Agriculture Organization official Henning Steinfeld said. Urgent action is required to remedy the situation. Cattle rearing is also a major source of land and water degradation, according to the UN report. 
the environmental cost per unit of livestock production must be cut by one half just to avoid the level of damage worsening beyond its present level it warns. When emissions from land use and land use change are included, the livestock sector accounts for 9% of CO2 deriving from human-related activities, but produces a much larger share of even more harmful greenhouse gases. It generates 65% of human-related nitrous oxide, which has 296 times the global warming potential of CO2. It gets you high. <laughs> Most of this yeah, comes from manures. <laughs> this is all very scientific. I don't know if our listeners are still with us. We have scientific listeners. Okay. Are you trying to dumb down our audience? <laughs> no, I'm already dumbed down in the studio now. And it accounts for respectively 37% of all human-induced methane, 23 times as warming as CO2, which is largely produced by the digestive system of ruminants and 64% of ammonia, which contributes significant, significantly to acid rain. Right, this is the stuff in all those lagoons around the uh, cattle. Uh-huh. The ones that the immigrants drowned in and our other stuff. Oh, yeah. oh that was terrible. Remember that stuff? It was a fast food nation. Yeah, it was kind of like a fast food nation that, that they didn't put in. With increased prosperity, people are consuming more meat and dairy products every year, the report notes. Global meat production is projected to more than double from 229 million tons in 1999-2001 to 465 million tons in 2050 while milk output is set to climb from 580 to 1,043 million tons. Ooh, all of which will end up on the thighs of Americans. Oh! Ooh. Livestock now use 30% of the Earth's entire land surface, mostly permanent pasture, but also including 33% of the global arable land used to producing feed for livestock, the report notes. As forests are clear to create new pastures, it's a major driver of deforestation, especially in Latin America, Latin America, where, for example, some 70% of former forests in the Amazon have been turned over to grazing. At the same time, herds cause wide-scale land degradation, with about 20% of pastures considered degraded through overgrazing, compaction, and erosion. This figure is even higher in the drylands, where inappropriate policies and inadequate livestock management contribute to advancing desertification. The livestock business... Desertification. Desertification. Sounds like what you do at your bakery. <laughs> the livestock business is among the most damaging sectors to the Earth's increasingly scarce water resources, contributing, among other things, to water pollution from animal waste, antibiotics and hormones, chemicals from tanneries, fertilizers, and the pesticides used to spray feed crops. So that's the, that's the UN that did that report. Derek's trying to kill me with these long stories. One of their there, of course, is you know, the, that there's an awful lot of starvation throughout the world. And uh, these uh, are... Yeah, we're using all the third world countries' land up. Developing nations. Right, so just so we can have the diseases of affluence. You know. And true. we can spread them around China and the rest of the world. So if you're out there and you think you're an environmentalist and you're still eating animal products, you might want to rethink your positions. Right, pick up your Arbuck Mr. Fuller. Check it out. <laughs> The world could be a better place. It's up to you, listeners. All right. All right. Well, you're complaining about the stories. You can take a break. I'm laughing because I'm making jokes. Jeez. All right. Our next story, animal rights political parties in Europe gain momentum. A Dutch animal rights party has become the first animal interest group to enter a European parliament after winning, two seats, after winning two seats in the country's general election. The Party for Animals, founded in October 2002, with a smiling dairy cow as its logo, 
was one of 24 parties vying for seats in Wednesday's election, which saw the ruling Christian Democrats remain the largest party. We are thrilled with such a wonderful result, said party leader Marianne Fiend. Finally, we can start realizing our party's highest priority, namely ending animal suffering. Small interest parties have sprung up in the Netherlands in recent years, fueled in part by the country's liberal roots and as people become more aware of environmental issues. Free Green, a party that advocates the growth and use of cannabis, and Party of Small Seats, which has as its motto, love, respect, and freedom, were among some of the wackier parties. Oh, wacky. <laughs> wacky <laughs> so <laughs> the most controversial, the pedophile party, which wanted a lower age of cons- consent for minors, failed to get on the ballot. Wow, that's surprising. Well, that shows that voters still have some brains. It's <laughs> trying to keep the continuum interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. In the United Kingdom, December 3rd was the official launch date of Animals Count, the first UK party ever to put animals at the top of the political agenda. Animals Count party founder Jasmine Dabu said in a statement, with half the EC budget going on unnecessary livestock subsidies, there has never been a better time to re-examine taxpayers' money spent on unsustainable farming methods that are associated with poor animal welfare and human health. Public support for animal welfare is growing fast in Britain. Over 3 million people support animal charities, and donations total 500 million pounds. Due to public pressure, fox hunting, fur farming, and testing on animals for cosmetics have already been banned in the UK. This was followed by the enforcement of the new UK and Scottish Animal Welfare Act in November 2006. The acts include a statutory duty to care for animals, higher penalties for animal abuse and grants, extended power to inspectors to seize animals that are suffering or in danger of suffering, preventative action. Excellent. It's doing great. Farm Sanctuary UK. That's right. Farm Sanctuary UK. Oh, yeah. I wish we could follow this We need an animal political party here. Oh, my God. The vegan radio party. Well, we got the Christian Democrats. Oh, my God. Yeah, we got lots of Christian Democrats. Yeah, they should really carry some of these uh, some of these issues. I mean, you know, animal welfare is certainly a Christian issue. Instead, they're passing the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act and making us all into terrorists. It's true. All right, our next story. Hey. Consumer Reports finds 83% of chicken flesh tested to be disease-infested. Which would be... Yeah, you got to rhyme that better. Eighty-three <laughs> percent of fresh tested has <laughs> been found to be disease-infested. Consumer Reports' analysis of fresh whole broilers bought nationwide revealed that eighty-three percent harbored Campylobacter or Salmonella, the leading bacterial causes of foodborne disease. That's a stunning increase from two thousand three when a similar study found that 49% tested positive for one or both pathogens. Leading chicken producers have stabilized the incidence of salmonella, but spiral-shaped Campylobacter, that's a good pronunciation, (laughs) has wriggled on to more chickens than ever. And although the U.S. Department of Agriculture tests chickens for salmonella against a federal standard, it has not set a standard for Campylobacter. False belief in the safety and health of free-range and organic meat is also misplaced. Chickens labeled as organic or raised without antibiotics were more likely to harbor harbor salmonella than were conventionally produced broilers. Moreover, most of the bacteria tested from all types of contaminated chicken showed resistance to one or more antibiotics, including some fed to chickens to speed their growth 
and those prescribed to humans to treat infections. The findings suggest that some people who are sickened by chicken might need to try several antibiotics before finding one that works. Consumer Reports tested 525 samples from 23 states and found these results. Campylobacter was present, was present in 81% of the chickens, Salmonella in 15%, both bacteria in 13%. Only 17% had neither pathogen. No major brand fared better than so others. Russian roulette with the chicken. And with any meat, actually. No major brand fared better than others overall. Foster Farms, Pilgrim's Pride, and Tyson Chickens were lower in salmonella incidence than Purdue, but they were higher in Campylobacter. Among all brands, 84% of the salmonella and 67% of the Campylobacter organisms we analyzed showed resistance to one or more antibiotics. Campylobacter is one of the most common causes of human, bacterial, gastroenteritis in the United States. 15 out of every 100,000 people are diagnosed with campylobacteriosis every year, and with many cases going unreported, up to 0.5% of the general population may unknowingly harbor campylobacter in their gut annually. Diarrhea, cramps, abdominal pain, and fever develop within two to five days of infection, and in most people, the illness lasts for seven to 10 days. Infection can sometimes be fatal, and some individuals develop Guillain-Barre syndrome, in which the nerves that join the spinal cord and brain to the rest of the body are damaged, sometimes permanently. So all those people nice. out there who think they're getting that flu, that five to seven day flu, is pro you know I'm sure there's like a, getting poisoned. I'm sure there's a good amount of people who are getting poisoned by meat. Well, let me let me tell you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you tell us, tell us, Darlene. What is it? I want to tell you. Um, well, in, chi in chicken processing, uh, it's it's common that um, greed um, is a big factor in this, obviously. But what happens is at the end of, after they've dumped the, uh, you know, after they've de-feathered the chickens and killed them and everything, there's a pool at the end of the line where they soak the chickens for, It's know, called the fetal pool. Yeah, for a few minutes in order to, so that their meat will gain a little extra weight and they can charge you more. So they're basically soaking the chickens in this water that is full of fecal matter and all the guts and stuff. And they don't change the water? I'm sure they change it every once in a while. <laughs> so every time you're eating chicken, you're getting like this fecal water and your chicken too. So. Yeah, well, the quote Bruce Willis from Fast Food Nation, just cook the meat. Just cook the meat. Yeah, just and and meat. drink a lot of whiskey with your meat. <laughs> you're still eating poop. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy your chicken today if you're eating it. Now on for our next chicken story. <laughs> New yeah. horrors for egg-laying chickens. When Jim Stelfer of Petaluma, California, saw a chicken crawling out of a mound of compost like the living dead, he knew something had changed at the egg farm next door. We called them zombie chickens, Stelfer said. Some of them crawled right up out of the ground. They'd get out and stagger around. What changed was the method used to get rid of spent hens, which are chickens that no longer produce eggs. And the change isn't just in California, it's throughout the country. The market for spent hen meat has collapsed. Since May, there isn't a California facility willing to take them. That means finding a way to dispose of more than half a million spent hens a year, and that's just in the Sonoma County area, mostly around Petaluma, where chickens and eggs have been an agricultural staple for a century. Four decades ago, people regularly used spent hens to cook homemade soup, stewing them on the stovetop for hours. Two decades ago, they still were stewed by companies for soup or to be sold as canned chicken. 
I think it's a damn shame there's no food value, said one-eyed farmer who insisted on anonymity, saying his company was vandalized four years ago by animal rights activists. <laughs> Compost made from the chickens is used as fertilizer or sold to farmers, but that doesn't cover the expense of producing it, farmer said. Stouffer said the mounds of compost definitely send a new smell wafting through the agricultural valley west of Petaluma. He said the carcasses occasionally attract a neighborhood dog and some vultures. It smells like something's dead, and the vultures certainly know it. Farmers said there are no hazards posed by the compost piles, which are not regulated by the county or state. Lisa Correa, the county's agricultural commissioner, said the only permit necessary would be if the ranches compost more than 1,000 cubic yards at a time. Regulations also may kick in if composting threatens to contaminate streams, she said. Stauffer said he's not complaining. He understands farmers have to do something with the chickens, but he wonders if the piles might pose health risks for the nearby penned chickens, creeks, or neighbors. Nice. So what is I? Night of the living chickens. Why am I not understanding what exactly is going on? They've got these compost piles. They're like leaving. They're just leaving them in big piles and they're composting. They're alive. Well, they, they supposedly gas them, but they don't all get killed, and then they bury them. So some of them are buried alive, and then the ones that are, you know, not buried too deep can supposedly crawl out of the ground. But they're also, there's also the compost pile there? Like, they're just becoming compost, kind of? Yeah, well, you know how in the, the egg industry, they also take all the baby male chicks that are, aren't useful to the egg industry and grind them up into compost or else suffocate them in plastic bags and throw them in a dumpster. Right. Well, this is just another, you know, another instance of animals that are not of profitability anymore being used for, you know, just basically being thrown away. Right, so they're thrown into a big pile, dead, buried, and they're starting to compost. They're like, yep. tur- they're being turned into compost, but they're just kind of laying there. Yeah, they're slowly ground up. In yeah, maybe they should take a cue from Butterball and turn them into oil. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should take a cue and uh, s- stop eating animal products. I think so. This is the story that made me sick. There. Yeah, there's some, well, I know. I know it's hard for people. They want that little pleasure on their tongue. All right. What's up next? How about a Kenneth Williams bumper? All right. Oh, I love this one. <laughs>
you got me so, uh, <laughs> we have our, we have our uh, well, you're listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM, or maybe you're listening to our podcast, www.veganradio.com, where you can find out all about these uh, stories on our website and anything else we talk about today. Do you have anything else you want to talk about, Megan? Do you want to talk about uh, your experience at the Kalsa Child Care Center while you were fasting? Um, I just had a wonderful experience as soon as I walked in there. The place was just um, full of light and people seemed happy. Um, the kids were just seemed happy. They weren't running around crazy. Um, even though they were Shout all... Shout out to mellow kids. They, they were. They, they seemed like... I mean, they were kids, but they seemed very... Mellow and eating a lot of sugar and fasting. Exactly, they weren't weren't intaking artificial. And then they were doing yoga and meditation. They were and singing songs and giving little hugs. Um, Oh, it was so sweet. We were in a circle and they gave us these tiny little hugs when (laughs) when uh, the owner was was doing a little song. Well, Amar was doing a little song circle, Um, and I got to have a juice when I was fasting, which was nice. A green juice. A green juice. Um, and it just it just made me really happy to see all these little kids sitting at the table drinking their water, which a lot of times I don't think kids are drinking water drinking enough water. Wheatgrass. And they're yeah, and they're they were drinking their wheatgrass. They were eating raw vegetables, um, and they just seemed happy, and it just made me feel happy. It made me feel like this is if I had, you know if I want if I had a kid and I drop her up there. and I had to put them in daycare <laughs> that would be the, that would be where I would bring them. Me too. I wish I was a kid and I could go. Maybe you can sneak in. All right. Well, we're going to play our uh, – we, we actually went there and did some recordings, and I edited them all last night. I'm pretty proud of this segment. Oh, it's so NPR quality. Yeah, <laughs> this is probably the highest quality you'll ever get out of your radio. So enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> I'm serious. We're high quality. I know we are, but in a different way. <laughs> So uh, we'll, we'll be back in about a half an hour to wrap up the show. I hope you enjoy this segment, and uh, thanks for tuning in. On Tuesday, Megan and I traveled to Leverett, Massachusetts to visit Kalsa Child Care. Kalsa means pure one. The center is owned and run by Amr Fuller. Amr is a raw foodist and a Sikh and she hopes to nurture in the children she cares for a healthy relationship to food and their own spiritual nature. I was exposed to raw foods when I was pregnant with my younger son, so he's 22. I was blessed to be recommended for a job um, as this woman's personal cook, although... When I came there, I was hired as a, a yogic cook. She knew the, the Sikh community in L.A. and where she used to live and had this very famous chef be her personal cook. Mm-hmm. And then she moved to Virginia where I lived and called the ashram, and I was recommended to, for that job, which I was hired for. And this woman was very wealthy, and she had a, you know, a butler and a few maids and a chauffeur, and I was her, her cook. And she paid my way to go to Hippocrates Health Institute because she wasn't well, and she sent me there for one week so I could learn how to make living food for her. And that's when I completely got inspired 
and said to myself, I want to do this for myself. Well, it's taken me 22 years to do it 100%, but over the 22 years, I have always been mostly on a living food diet. Amr not only provides wonderful living food for the children, but also teaches them yoga and basic meditation and breathing techniques. When you came, you were at the tail end of our circle time, and that's when we have um, all kinds of fun things. We do yoga, meditation, we teach the children how to do deep relaxation also. I had a... I had a much older crew last year, so there were some of them that were um, <laughs> very jittery and had a hard time calming down. I, I know for, for some time there was one little girl that was getting a little bit of caffeine every day, mm. and um, it was something else, you know. Everybody's on their mat lying down, and... You could really see, you know, oh and there's all different things that influence us, you know, our bodies, how relatively calm we are, how quickly we can still our bodies. There's so many things that influence that, but um, we taught them in the yoga class, you know, the deep relaxation, the position called Shavasana, corpse pose. It's just a very still, calming way to be on your back, and so we would start out the nap time like that. And that was really helpful, getting everybody to breathe and just, so that was a great thing. So yoga is an awesome part of my life. I can't imagine not having that be a huge part of my life. And um, so we share that with the children here. One of the first children to open up to Megan and I was a young girl named Osha, who had a sore lip. Your lip is sick? My lip is something in my teeth in, in, my, in my lip that's very attractive and, and it's and I think it is that um, I, um, I'm not sure but I think I think it's because I brush my teeth so hard <laughs> that it's kind of like my lip have kind of like Oh, are you going to be able to sing? Yeah. Amr suggested that they all sing a song to help Osha's lips and everyone else who is hurting in the world. So the sounds are Ra, Ma, Da, Sa. Sa, Se, So, Hum. We're going to do a little kirtan. <laughs> so inhale deeply. Ah. Uh-huh.
exhale, spread that love from your heart all over the universe. Lots of love to all of those. Megan naturally wondered whether the children at Kelsa got less colds than other children. I'm wondering if, since when you have a lot of kids around together, usually yeah. there's a lot of, especially in the wintertime, there's a lot of sickness, there's a lot of colds. Yeah. Do you notice that you have a lot less of that here? Well, I don't really have a way to measure that. Yeah. I don't really check in with the other daycares, but I certainly am aware that, um, you know, there are waves of sickness, mm -hmm. and I feel like the children here go through that as well. Mm -hmm. um, some are stronger than others, and, mm -hmm. you know, typically don't get sick at all, you know. Very, very little, and some do. And you know, they eat. They don't eat that much here. Some of the children do come here five days a week, which I oh, think okay. is fabulous. But some of them are only here twice a week. Oh, okay. And um, and are any of them raw food foodists at home, or are they just have raw food here? Just here. Um, but I, I feel like I influence, and I think a lot of the parents are conscious of feeding their children as, as, you know, much healthy food as they can, um, but I know that um, it's different. Everyone is different, and everyone has a different relationship to food and their child and what they think is, you know, some people go for what's convenient and easy. Some people are so stressed out, they have no time between their job and their family. They're going to do it all. And um, they want to do, you know, easy stuff. And if their child is going, oh, I don't, I don't want that, they just let it be. Whereas I'm to the other extreme. I'm wanting to teach children how to learn to love things that are really, really good for them. So if a child comes here and goes, oh, I don't really want to eat that, or, you know, struggles with it, mm -hmm. so it'll be, you know, maybe one sprout. Eat the one sprout today. Right. Yep. And just have a little, I want just you to sit spot. there until you finish your one sprout. Right. And it's I tried that with Megan, but she's very resistant. <laughs> oh, come on, here. One sprout. She can do it. I can eat a sprout. The sound you might have heard in the background is Amr's juicer. Before the children have their lunch break, Amr has them tilt their heads back and pretend to be baby birds as she gives them eyedropper squirts of wheatgrass juice. The children seem to enjoy this much more than any adult who has tried wheatgrass would imagine. Even Osha here is helping me with the wheatgrass juice today. Oh, so the kids do shots of wheatgrass? They do eyedropper fulls. Eyedroppers? Really? You'll see wow. in a few minutes they'll have it when they come to the table. Before we eat they get their wheatgrass juice. Wow. A boost of chlorophyll. Look up to the sky and tip your chin back. Aiden's ready. See how Aiden's doing it? Good. You ready, Linnea? 
Yummy. Do they pretend they're little birds? Yeah, well, just so that they don't get their mouths on this and I can squeeze squeeze it in. You ready, Annika? Tip your head up. Good. Are you you ready, Solomon? Good job. Okay, here comes some for you, Jack. Tip your head up. Good. Oh, are you ready? Look up to the sky. Good girl. Yummy. Are you ready tonight? Up to the sky. Who wants some more? Really? Except for Ocean. I do. Okay, head up. It's yummy, isn't it? Who'd like some more? You just had to. Do you want some more, Aiden? I think Megan wants some. I think so. Come here, little baby. Do you want some more, Debbie? I, I mean, I think it'll help me. Yummy. Here, Jack. Yay. Make sure you get some to Jared. He's all on. Tip your head up, Megan. <laughs> Sorry, I got it on your chin. I'll see you. I'll have a little bit, too. <laughs> Tip your head back. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Monica, you want some more? So you like wheatgrass grass tonight? I need you like it. Not so much. Not so much? How come you kept asking for more? You know, it's, it's good fun, for you. It's fun to get to pretend like to be a bird, isn't it? Do you want to be like a bird? Anybody else want more? What's Something. your What's your favorite bird? Mm, um, okay, a flamingo. A flamingo! Wow. Ask Ask Jack. What's your favorite food here? Sprouts. You like all the sprouts? Are you a little sprout yourself? <laughs> Before the meal begins, Amr also makes sure that the children drink some water. Children come here loving water, and some of them come here as though they have never had water in their entire life. And I think that's true for some, mm-hmm. that they get juices and sweetened drinks and, and everybody took your cup up and God drink. knows what. So we train them to drink water, and so they get maybe four to six ounces three times a day, you know, at least that much every day when they're here between the two snacks and lunch. And we do it before we eat again. Ideally, you would want to wait maybe 15 minutes or a half an hour before you drink and eat. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's good to do both at the same time, but we don't have all day to be at the table (laughs) drinking and eating. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a lot of patience for these little kids. We do it just before. (laughs) And for those who really do not drink well, we will start them back and forth. Have five sips of water and then you can have a little bit of this food. And that teaches mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. to go to the water and then they one day will just drink their water out of their cup and be done and move along to their lunch. And it's, it's great to watch the, the process. The food the children were served looked wonderful. And for Megan and I, it took all of our willpower to resist telling the children to look out the window at the big purple dinosaur so we could sneak some of it for ourselves. Luckily, Amr was keeping an eye. All right, well, how about today's food? What do you got? 
what do we have? Oh, well, for the kiddos, we started off with the wheatgrass juice, and they had a sprout platter and veggie platter that had buckwheat and sunflower greens. Those are the sprouts that are grown in the soil that have lots of nutrition. And the pea shoots as well. Those grow in the soil, too. All grown by these children here. We help, but they do it. Nori. There's um, nori that is raw, that is not toasted, that, oh, that I've been buying. And kale and celery and sweet peppers. So that's our veggie platter. And then we had open-faced sandwiches. Cucumber with... Um, avocado, mashed up avocado. We say guacamole, but it doesn't really have anything added in it. And on top, dulse flakes. Dulse is a kind of seaweed. So many minerals and vitamins and all good things. And then we had pizza. The pizza crust was a, a dehydrated cracker made out of sun-dried tomatoes that were soaked with golden flax seeds and garlic and oregano and a bunch of veggies. And then on top we put this pizza topping. That's also the tomatoes, um, the sun-dried tomatoes soaked so they're soft and in the food processor I cream them up with, um, again, a bunch of vegetables and pizza seasoning, stuff like that. If I have time I dehydrate vegetables in the dehydrator. They're just like vegetables that come out on a regular baked pizza. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun. And this if is I nice for just it's very finger food, which I know small children like that, just kind of grabbing a piece here and there. Yeah. So it looks like it's fun for them too. This is a good age group for finger food today. Um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday I have some younger ones and mm. in addition to the food that you see here now I also blend up with avocado. Um, you know, all the foods that we're having, or mm -hmm. some of them. Mm -hmm. Sprouts, cucumber, make a really nice energy soup for them, and they love it. This is just such a much more relaxing environment than other daycares <laughs> that I can imagine. <laughs> it's much nicer. Yeah, I definitely have a pet peeve with um, scenes at schools and such where, you know, food is being thrown or mm -hmm. just all over the table, right. all over the floor, all over the child. So we, you know, we, we just teach table manners. It's not a big deal and it's fun and it makes mealtimes enjoyable and where the adult wants to eat with the child. When a child's left to eat on his own or left to walk around the house with their food and whatever, that doesn't work for me. That feels like, um, I feel like it's, you're teaching your child to be disrespectful to their own body as well as to the food and to the earth and not, and also I feel like food is a good time for family time to be together, you know, to keep that old tradition of eating together, which I think for some has been quite unpleasant, <laughs> but <laughs> it's so true um, that it. Um, I'm an idealist, so to me, that's an important time. You know, most people work during the day, 
and young people go to school, it's nice to come home and share that dinner time together and just check in. How are you? How was your day? As long as your parents don't force uh, cooked summer squash on you. God <laughs> <laughs> forbid. Oh, dear. <laughs> You're one of the few. <laughs> Especially when it's right out of the garden. Really? We probably uh, do something I like fun the raw zucchini when you make it into little uh, pastas. Yeah, yeah. I, can eat, I can eat summer squash when it's raw, exactly, but not when it's cooked. I <laughs> the texture. You have to come back. My friend borrowed back. He just bought me this little spiralizer. Mm-hmm. It's oh, the coolest the thing. Curly. I've wanted one for so long. It makes those skinny long, and it a lot of other shapes too. Right. But I take all those winter squashes mm-hmm. um, that's so yummy. We spiralize up the squash. Mm-hmm. It could be any any vegetable really, but. Um, some things are easier and more palatable right. just when they're raw, like a cucumber or a juicy yeah. red bell pepper. Um. Megan is a tough sell on a completely raw diet and was excited to hear about the one treat that children sometimes get that isn't completely raw. We heard about your popcorns. Well, you know what I uh, like about the popcorn? 99 and 9 tenths percent. But that's, that's what I like. There's always... A little flexibility, that one little thing, which popcorn's a great healthy snack for you, and you keep that one thing around, and that's like, there's just a little flexibility there, and I like that. Yeah, we don't cook it in oil either. We add this really healthy topping. Nutritional yeast, I hear, which is one of my favorite popcorn toppings. (laughs) Olive oil and all that good stuff. But um, the popcorn, I always, um, you know, when the, the children who are late, in their teen years, mm-hmm. approaching, well, I think I have some graduates that are probably 20 now. Um, they're in college. Yeah. My dream was always that they would come back to visit because they love the popcorn so much <laughs> that they would want to come and have some, you know. And, I mean, really, I wanted them to come and visit me, but I always thought, you know, yeah. And it's true. I have children that come and visit, and... You know, they really, they do. They want to have some popcorn, and I'll I'll always try to make it. Amr has helped running the child care center from her daughter, her daughter-in-law, and a third woman named Mary. Amr's daughter, Jai, had the children identify the colors of the food they were served and then read descriptions of the color's meaning from a book called The Magical Rainbow Man by Shahastra. What's your name? Jai. I'm Amr's daughter. How long have you been Amr's daughter? No. All my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a funny one that <laughs> So you guys know the story, right? So before we read, let's look at our lunch today. You want to bring over the cucumber platter? Can I please have some more lunch? Yeah. Amr's bringing over the cucumbers for you. Oh, look at those. And let's see who can tell me a color that we're having for lunch today. What color is something on our on our table? Uh, uh, green. Green. Yeah. So let's start with green. Tell us what is green. What is that tonight? No. It's a color. No. What What are you eating? That's green. Cucumber. Good. And what's on top of the cucumber? Mmm. Mmm. Guacamole. 
Right. So in this story, it's going to tell us about these special colors. And it starts... It's mushed up. Um, it says that... It is said that the rainbow man comes from the skies whenever there's a moment of love on the earth. Is that where we live? On the earth? Yeah. He's a magical being who especially loves children, and he brings with him all the beautiful colors as gifts to give. So let's see what he brought about green. He said, the rainbow man took the children to the land of green, and he led them to a cooler green place. It felt like a deep, cool, leafy forest, and a calm, smiling being greeted them. This is the greeting. The man. I am the maiden of the land of green. Um, is, is, is she a girl? I think so, yeah. She's a maiden. <laughs> green gives harmony to every living being. It soothes the heart so deep inside and gives you a loving smile so wide. And then the little girl Misha said, green feels good. See, look, see the little children? Yeah. The rainbow man is taking them up to the sky where the rainbows come from and teaching them about the colors. Knowing that the children and their families are not raw foodists, we asked Amr why she thought that they were attracted to Kalsa child care. When people hear about this daycare, are they intrigued? Do, do some people come and bring their children who have no knowledge about raw foods or vegetarianism and just say, hey, I want to try this out? Sure. Some people bring their children here because they, they don't feed their children healthy food and they know it. Wow. And they feel like, wow, if I can send my child to a, mm -hmm. a school where that's all taken care of, that's awesome. So um, it's great that at least they have that in their awareness. Mm -hmm. One good meal a day. Yeah, it's yeah. better than none. That's I, um, I read an article in the newspaper this summer about a, a camp, a day camp, or maybe an overnight camp, overnight camp, where the children first thing would line up at this table and... Ha, you know, get their medications, and it was this like huge table, and more and more, that's become the norm, um, where children have, you know, a, a huge, a vast array of all kinds of diseases and such. By the time they're you know, seven or eight years old, going to overnight camp. I mean, I see it here. It's increasing more and more. I have probably, I know last year for sure, I had almost 50% of the children that came here had nebulizers in their, in their bags, in their That's cubbies. That's the asthma thing? That's the asthma thing, right. That's wow. crazy. And there was only one child in that group that I had to administer it to pretty regularly. But still, they all, you know, in their file, so-and-so, you know, yeah, it's like obviously if you need to very, administer this. Very wrong. I was just going to say a lot of people, too, think that dairy products are cause for that for children using inhalers, that it gives them asthmatic symptoms. Absolutely. So that, I think that's another, another cause. Absolutely. Just any foods that are hard to digest, especially dairy, because that enzyme that that baby calf gets in the milk that it drinks from its mom is to grow that 
that baby oh. into a, what, Shiny. a 5,000 pound animal? I don't mm -hmm. know, at least 2,000 pounds. It's a huge, you know, animal. And human beings can't tolerate that, that intensity. It's too much. And, we, you know, we don't necessarily notice it. And people, you know, the status quo is such that people think it's normal to have mucus coming out of your body. Um, I don't, but, you know, parents <laughs> will walk either. in the door, you know, oh, she's got her cold this right. week, you know, right. and um, I expect it to be like this all winter. And so I feel like any little influence, you know, any little bit that I can share what I've learned, um, I'm just, I feel really blessed. One of the most touching parts of the visit for Megan and I was when the children closed their activity circle and gave each other, as well as Megan and I, hugs. It reminded me of a quote I once heard, love and happiness are like raw almond butter. When you spread them around, you can't help but get some on yourself. our circle we sing this special song and it's our time to give gentle hugs to friends. So we have a few new friends in the circle today. Megan and Derek. Don't forget to give them hugs too. Thank <laughs> you. 